I want to talk to you tonight about about sanctuary. And I was thinking about um, this. I think this relates to the to what the abbot brought up last night about being one's unique self and uh, being an iron person. So we'll see if that, (laughs) who's going to see if you can find the the connection between those two. So um, I was thinking about all the years I was going to college and in graduate school and away from home. And um, my father passed away when I was 20, and he was only 40, 43 when that happened. It was a big shock to all of us. Um, he went into the doctor on Monday, was diagnosed almost immediately, had a massive brain hemorrhage on Wednesday, and was pa- you know, passed on Saturday. So we had no expectation of that. Um, I didn't think our family would be able to make it um, because he was such a big figure. Um, He and my mother ran a business together, uh, communications towers. And I just imagined that she would sell the business in any way she could. And then uh, we would all go to work and support the family together. And instead she, um, she actually turned out to be a better business person than he was. I mean, they had they had been in business together, but she streamlined everything. I should say that that white women received a lot of help from affirmative action more than um, people of color did uh, and have. So, just to just to make sure that people know that <laughs> wasn't all her doing. Um, but I also wanted to say that. For all those years, so so thinking about what my sense of sanctuary was, my sense of home, um, all those years I was returning home to visit, went from college, dragging all my laundry home <laughs> to avoid the laundromat. Um, and she was always welcoming me to use her machines. And um, I tried to live on my graduate student stipend. And most of the time could not do very well with that. And she was always there supporting me in that. So um, there's one sense of sanctuary, one sense of refuge. Um, And I'm telling this story to you to explore that idea of refuge. Um, We can think of of all kinds of relationships that that uh, and even institutions that have served as refuges to us. Um, we can also think of the impermanence of them. I, just as my mother came to care for her, uh, her own mother's needs as my grandmother got too old to um, take care of herself, now my sisters and I care for our mother. Um, in her dementia, she longs to go back to her childhood home. She, it must have been the place that she felt most secure and that place is gone, long gone. There's no such house anymore. Um, so the, it was must have been this perfect, must be this perfect refuge in her diminishing memory. Um, now that my sisters and I care for her, I believe that the refuge I always felt with her isn't gone. 
but it's just transformed. In one way, I've internalized all that generosity that um, she always gave me and my sisters and, and family. And now I can care for her without a thought about constraint like she always did for me. So I also think about this place, this, this building that we come to as a refuge. And um, when I first came here, it was just after the Sangha moved from the place further down the street. And it was also just, I think Dave Johnson was ordained the next week or something after the first week I came here. Um, I could hear everyone talk. And over the years, I've heard people talking about what the old place was like and the sort of disruption in their practice, how they felt like they were so attached to it, this cozy little place. Um, where they had spent so many hours working um, on the floors. I've heard many stories about those floors. <laughs> um, so there, so that's a, that, that's a refuge, a, a sanctuary that has changed, that changed pretty significantly when we moved here. And wherever we move, we would, we would still have that sense of sanctuary. It would just transform. Um, and also, even when I come in the mornings, I'm, I know I'm supposed to be here in my seat 10 minutes before the bell rings if I'm dough on. So I'm racing over bumps and you know, <laughs> uh, making sure I get here in time. And as soon as I walk in the door, it just feels so orderly and peaceful and it's all fine. Uh, so... Um, so the where is the refuge in that case? Um, it's not just in the building. We know it's not just in the building. And um, if I say it's in the people, then I have to admit that there have been occasions when um, there have been exceptions to, <laughs> uh, to that sense of comfort. Um, so maybe it's in the meeting of all these elements. Uh, the, a constellation of my own intention, the upright presences of all my Sangha friends, and the place that we built together that um, makes this sanctuary. So in the Book of Serenity, there's a story called The World Honored One Points to the Ground. And here's how it goes. As the World Honored One was walking with the congregation, he pointed to the ground with his finger and said, this spot is good to build a sanctuary. As the world, uh, oh, I just read that. <laughs> uh, Indra, emperor of the gods, took a blade of grass, stuck it in the ground and said, the sanctuary is built. The world honored one smiled. The sanctuary seems a lot less stable even than the ones I was just imagining with my family relationships that have changed over time. Um, why does that story delight so much? And what made the Buddha smile when Indra understood immediately that sanctuary meant something other than a permanent, stable, physical space to which people would go to find safety? 
And why is this playful vision of sanctuary more stable than even the most ingenious architecture for weathering disastrous weather events? So this is something I feel is connected to this idea that Galen Roshi was bringing up last night about the, um, the iron person and who we are as finding our being ourselves, being our full self. So in one song's preface to this koan, he asks, who is the person who can be master at any place and embody the principle of any karma? And I think I've been looking at that sentence a lot. And it's so funny to think about being master of any place. Can you you imagine what that would be like? You can just go into any place and you're just, you're walking in like with this posture that Constance showed us today. (laughs) Um, I believe that one song addresses something vital in this koan. He sees through our usual ideas of stability and security. Houses seem secure, but they don't last forever. Bridges, roads, monuments, governments, visions of loved ones change. And sometimes suddenly, sometimes over a long period of time. What is it in stillness and silence that enables us to be the person who can master any place. In Hongzhu's commentary on this koan, he picks up on Indra's spontaneity in his response to the Buddha's request. Hongzhu enjoins, taking what's at hand, use it freely. Taking it what's at hand, use it freely. So I see a lot of... Um, well, freedom in that, and just um, a sense of certainty in your uh, your place in the world, that uh, the resources are around you, and you can use them freely, and you, the resources that are around you are uncountable. So we're ingenious in finding uh, ways to adapt. The whole universe is our home. So some of you might have had the experience of being able to go out to the garage where odds and ends have been stored for years and years and being able to find just that piece of that one piece of wood that's the right size to, to build shelves or whatever. I once had an apartment, a duplex, and it had a Garage. I will never forget that garage because many years of renters had left their stuff in there. <laughs> I found a double uh, Billie Holiday album that I listened to. I mean, continuously listened to that album. I would love that. But so many things, just odds and ends, just anything you're doing. What do I need? A, a screw of a certain kind, go out there, dig around for a while. There it is. <laughs> um, so I like to think of that as a way that we, we can use the resources around us to fashion a shelter um, for ourselves. When we find ourselves feeling at a loss, that's okay. We probably need to rest and recover for a while when that happens. 
And then inevitably, we can reach for a solution, find the stability we need. We can take what's at hand, use it freely, as Hongzhu says. Hongzhu also responds to Indra's place in this koan. In his verse, in Hongzhu's verse, he says, coming from another world, naturally, he's a guest. From outside creation, a guest shows up. Wherever you are, be content with your role. Everywhere, life is sufficient in its way. I'm, I'm have to, I am such a complainer. I would like not to be <laughs> that I always go to complaints first. I'm sure that's not true of any of you. <laughs> but I, it takes me a while to realize that life is sufficient in its own way. I'm usually like, if only it hadn't been that way or, you know, wanting to change things around. Um, so that, that could be a, a bumper sticker. <laughs> Everything is every, everywhere. Life is sufficient in its own way. The cosmology of early India, where the Buddha walked with his disciples, was bursting with gods and devas, magical beings of all sorts. And if you read most of the Mahayana sutras, you'll see this abundant cosmology crammed with world systems, beings who notice and care about what's happening in the mundane plane. Here we have Indra walking with the Buddha as if he were a human disciple. Hongzhu notices the interesting shift in roles in this situation. If he were in his triyash, Stri Masa, heaven, Indra would be playing the host. But here he's in the Saha world of Shakyamuni Buddha's realm, and he's playing the role of guest. So here's another one of those unexpected resources that arrives just in time to help when help is needed. Think of all the serendipitous arrivals across your lifetime. People or beings who showed up just as you needed help. This koan presents Indra showing up, being a guest, content with his role, as Hongzhu says, and making everyone feel that everywhere life is sufficient in its own way. So if we, in the Vimalakirti Sutra that Galen Roshi introduced last night, after Manjushri, so she was, just to remind you, if you, if you heard it or did not hear it, um, Vimalakirti decides to be sick so that he can show the disciple, invite them to his house and to show, that, to show them uh, the medicine that's needed for our uh, illness, uh, our, our misperception of reality. And one after the other say, I'm reluctant to go. <laughs> All these very imp important and powerful bodhisattvas. But Manjushri, after saying he's reluctant, says, okay, I'll go. <laughs> um, and so... 
uh, he, after he agrees to go to Vimalakirti to inquire about the il- his illness, the thousands of followers who are there s- decide to follow along because they want to hear this uh, Dharma discussion. And there's an interesting architectural event that has some bearing on our discussion of sanctuary. When Vimalakirti realizes the group is coming to see him, he magically empties out his house to make room for them. And you might wonder how big is his house if it's, you know, if you have thousands of beings coming and he just, you know, is living in a human house and empties it out. Um, so he empties it out. At some point in the dialogue, Shariputra has a thought about where everybody is going to sit. And uh, Vimalakirti reads his mind. He asks Manjushri about the um, Buddha fields where he has visited um, that have the best lion thrones for all his guests. And Manjushri tells him that there's a Buddha, Buddha field where the Buddha is immensely large and there the seats are 23 million miles tall. Uh, Vimalakirti performs a miraculous feat, calling on the Tathagata of that world to send 3,200,000 thrones. He's able to fit all these thrones into his house without disturbing its regular proportions. So now for the funny part. Uh, The bodhisattvas who have already achieved a certain level of understanding are able to transform their bodies to a height of 145,000 miles tall. It says it in leagues, but I just did the math. I figured it out. (laughs) The conversion so you could could picture (laughs) what that is. Um, And they climb up onto their thrones because they're now tall enough to, to sit on them comfortably. But others can't utilize the lion thrones until Bhimalakirti teaches the beginner bodhisattvas that particular knowledge so that they too can transform their bodies. And that leaves the great disciples, and of course, Shariputra is one of them, uh, unable to seat themselves on the thrones. So Bhimalakirti picks on Shariputra again asking him, go ahead, take your seat, (laughs) Um, and forcing Shariputra to say he can't do so because the seats are so high. Vimalakirti advises the disciples to bow to the Tathagata from the the, whose Buddha, Buddha realm the seats have come, and once they do, up they go. So they're, they're able to get up on those seats. Um, So, This was all, of course, an object lesson in emptiness that Vimalakirti was teaching. Vimalakirti follows this grand feat with a series of analogies, and these I want to read directly from what he says. Um, So, the analogies are so fun, so many. These are just a few of them. He says, only those beings who are destined to be uh, disciplined by miracles see and understand the putting of the king of mountains 
Sumeru into the mustard seed. So just so you could follow what he said, it's just the most amazing thing. Only those beings who are destined to be disciplined by miracles. So do you think you're destined to be disciplined by miracles, taught by miracles? So he says, only those beings who are destined to be disciplined by miracles see and understand the putting of the king of mountains, Sumeru, into the mustard seed. That, Reverend Shariputra, is an entrance to the domain of the inconceivable liberation of the bodhisattvas. And I'll just say one more of the, um, the funny uh, analogies. Furthermore, Reverend Shariputra, the bodhisattva who lives in the inconceivable liberation can pour into a single pore of his skin all the waters of the four great oceans without injuring the water animals such as fish, tortoises, <laughs> crocodiles, <laughs> frogs, <laughs> and other creatures. And without the Nagas, Yaksas, Yakshas, Gandharvas, Asuras, even being aware of where they are. I mean, who would want to pour? <laughs> this is my question. Who would want to pour the oceans into one's pore, <laughs> one's skin? But if you wanted to, you could do it. <laughs> and all those creatures would not be disturbed. Um, and he says, and the whole operation is visible without any injury or disturbance to any of those living beings. So we, we can discipline ourselves in the miraculous resources of this world and other worlds, all interpenetrating, all available to us at every moment. Um, so, all right. So none of these, uh, yeah, I already said the crocodiles and the frogs <laughs> that are in the ocean. <laughs> um, so he goes many, many more, many more similes, many more analogies that he presents to that. So we come back to where we started, imagining what it makes, what it takes to make us feel safe. What happens when the one person in the world who made us feel safe is no longer there? After some time, we wake up and realize that we've always had the resources within. That the universe without has always freely offered the resources we need. We just have to bend down, pluck a blade of grass, and plant it. 